Hello and welcome to episode 8 of my Leaders of the Civil War podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk more about George Armstrong Custer. This is part 3 of our discussion about uh, Custer. And in this episode, we will discuss the post-war years leading up to the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Now, by way of review, uh, George Armstrong Custer is probably best known today uh, for the Little Bighorn Massacre and his role in leading 260-plus troops of the 7th U.S. Cavalry to their deaths in Montana Territory on June the 25th, of, uh, 1876. However, Custer actually, at this, uh, before this time, had finished the Civil War as one of the best-known commanders in the Army. He was a major general of volunteers in the Cavalry Corps of the Army of the Potomac. He was a genuine war hero to a nation having uh, personally led so many victorious cavalry charges in the last years of the war, and most importantly, having blocked Robert E. Lee's Army of uh, Northern Virginia at Appomattox Courthouse, which led to the surrender of his army. The newspapers loved him, the people loved him. His commander, Phil Sheridan, thought so much of him that he bought the table used to draft the terms of surrender at Appomattox from Wilmer McLean and presented it to Custer's wife, Libby. Some say he was the luckiest man in the nation, and Custer's luck was a proven thing. So to set the stage for the next phase of his life, it's important to appreciate the backdrop of the Civil War period. There was a massive drawdown of forces underway in the Army to what would be a tiny force that would be used mainly to just fight Indians and facilitate Reconstruction. The country was expanding westward rapidly. Railroad construction and industrialization were happening at a blistering pace. This was the Gilded Age, with massive growth of corporations, really for the first time in American history. And most importantly to our story, the Plains Indians were caught in the middle of all of this. Besides that, Reconstruction in the South was underway, and the atrocities uh, that were being committed against blacks by whites were, were really bad in the South. In the 11 years of Custer's life after the Civil War, he was directly involved in all of these things. Naturally, I cannot begin to tackle any of them with enough detail in the context of a podcast to even even break the surface. I will touch on some of these uh, issues because they did influence Custer's life greatly, and they did, in, in the end, bring him uh, to the place in Montana, uh, which we now call the Little Bighorn, in, uh, on June 25th of 1876. So the general themes uh, of this podcast is, you know, Custer was a straight-up warrior. He was not a manager of people. He wanted battles every day, but after the war, he only saw four battles in 11 years, and this was a problem for him. He was a finely-tuned fighting machine, a killer, an instrument of death in the hands of the U.S. government. However, outside of that context, he really struggled to make his way in the world. He, he was a gambler, and some said he had an addiction. He longed to be rich and powerful, but lacked the discipline to make it happen. Even when, he, when investors were willing to front him seed money for a silver mine, he couldn't really bring himself to actually take the time to manage the mine, and things did not go well with his investment. He did try other types of investments, but he was poor at it. He was issued really too much credit and was allowed to gamble on shorts and derivatives and things he didn't understand, and that did not go well for him. He actually ended up living, living 
uh, Libby quite a bit of debt. He was an outspoken Jacksonian Democrat in a time when it was not popular to be so. His outspokenness in the area of politics would come back to bite him more than a few times over the years. Okay, so after the Civil War was over, Custer got into a cycle of making some pretty questionable choices, which got him into hot water with the superiors and with the American public. Then his heroics on the battlefield would inevitably get him out of trouble. General Sheridan was his biggest supporter and would personally intervene on his behalf on several occasions. Now, Custer missed out on the Grand Review in Washington because of a special mission from General Sheridan. On June 3, 1865, Custer accepted command of the 2nd Division of the Cavalry to march from Alexandria, Louisiana to Hempstead, Texas, as part of the Union Occupation Forces there in Texas. Now, Texas did not know that they had lost the war, and they were going about their business as if nothing had happened. Hundreds of thousands of slaves had been smuggled to Texas as the southern plantations were being decimated during the Civil War by Union troops, and they were still being treated as slaves long after the end of the war. So it was the uh, Union Army's mission to travel to Texas to free them. He was sent to Hempstead, Texas, about 50 miles northwest of Houston, his army was in, in rough shape, or his, his division was in rough shape. They had terrible rations and a, a, a problem with a lack of supplies. And he did really a poor job in Texas of converting from a war leader to a peacetime manager of troops. Because of his Jacksonian Democrat upbringing, he identified more with the southern whites in Texas than with the newly freed slaves he had been sent there to protect. Uh, most of his men did not want to be there because they had volunteered to fight for the Union, not to be a police force for thousands of miles from home. So desertions and mutinies were rampant, and Custer used really draconian measures to stem the tide. These included head shavings and whippings and other things that were not allowed by law. He was sort of known as a martinet uh, for the treatment of his troops. He also got a little bit too cozy with the local landowners and allowed their flattery to sort of cloud his judgment. There was a, a girl who had been held in slavery long past Juneteenth, and um, he, she had escaped to go to be with her mother. She was a very young girl, and uh, he had not. He, she had been murdered by her former owners, and uh, Custer had not handled that well. But there was no Freedmen's Bureau in, a, in Texas at the time. So there was really not much justice for former slaves. That was Custer's job at the time uh, until the Freedmen's Bureau agency got set up was to, was to sort of be the adjudicator for these matters. And he, he really struggled in that role. Ironically, later he would testify to Congress accurately about the privations going on in Texas. Uh, but this was to play up... Uh, play himself up to the Republican senators because he needed to get a promotion. This is what he said, quote, I have paid considerable attention to the actions of the Freedmen's Bureau, unquote. He added, quote, I am firmly of the opinion that unless the present Bureau or some substitute is maintained for an indefinite period, great wrongs and an immense amount of oppression would be entailed upon the Freedmen, unquote. He said he had heard from secret terrorist organizations and reported murders of blacks and whites, quote, merely for the feeling of hostility to them as a class, unquote. African Americans, he declared, were universally loyal, eager to educate themselves, and willing to work. 
He even offered evidence in support of black suffrage, saying, quote, I believe the freedmen would consult their own interest in casting their votes, and judging from their conduct during the, the past war, their votes would always be in cast, in, cast in favor of loyalty and union, unquote. Now, after this time in Texas, the volunteer army was really demobilizing fast, and on February the 1st, 1866, Major General Custer mustered out of the U.S. Volunteer Service and took an extended leave of absence to await orders. So then Custer and Libby boarded a steamship at Galveston Island to begin their next venture. And for Custer, that led him to New York. So after some time in New York City, and after considering career options uh, in September, Custer was reverted to the rank of captain in the regular army which was a blow to his ego, having been a major, major general of volunteers. There were actually 135 major generals in the volunteer army by the end of the Civil War, and most would either be mustered out permanently out of the service or reverted to a much lower rank like Custer. We think of Custer as the ultimate outdoorsman and individualist. However, while he was in New York, he actually realized that his greatest pleasures were money, culture, society, women, and politics. From New York, he wrote to Libby, quote, I long to become wealthy, not for wealth alone, but for the power it brings, unquote. However, he really wasn't sure how to make that happen. Now, at this point... Custer got involved with President Andrew Johnson during his, quote, swing around the circle, unquote, campaign tour, which really turned out to be a bit of a sad joke. Uh, Grant was also along for the ride, but stayed in the background and wrote to his wife of the president of President Johnson's behavior, quote, I have never been so tired of anything before as I have been with this political, the political speeches of Mr. Johnson, unquote. Then he goes on to say, quote, I look upon them as a national disgrace, unquote. But Custer actually defended Johnson fiercely and vocally in much the same way that the president spoke at these speeches. In Indianapolis, he in, in, interrupted Johnson's remarks to shout down the hecklers saying, quote, hush, you damned ignorant Hoosiers, unquote. For a serving military officer, uh, actively campaigning for a presidential can- candidate was really quite inappropriate, even back then. This made him pretty unpopular with the, po- with the powerful Republicans, and it would later come back to bite him. He was actually uh, courted by the Democrats to run for Congress during this time, but Libby, having spent a lot of time in Washington, knew politics better than Armstrong, and she convinced him not to do this, and which was a good thing because the Democrats lost uh, in a landslide in the in the midterm elections, and Custer um, was humiliated because of his association with Johnson. So right after this, uh, Grant promoted him to lieutenant colonel. Grant at the time was the head of the army, uh, general in chief. This was August of 1866. He got promoted to lieutenant colonel, but it was over a black regiment, and Custer did not want this assignment. So he went over Grant's head directly to President Andrew Johnson to secure a a position with a white regiment instead. This was the first step in getting him on the wrong side with uh, future President Grant. 
Now, his next assignment was with the 7th U.S. Cavalry. He was based in Fort Riley, Kansas, and the 7th Cavalry would be the unit uh, to go with him that he was with for the remainder of his life right up until uh, Little Bighorn. So in 1867, he accompanied General Hancock on an expedition meant to intimidate the, the High Plains Indians into moving into the reservation, but it did not go well. They were actually lured out of their camp by Lakota Indians led by Pawnee Killer, who then humiliated them by circling back and looting the Army's camp. Custer did, however, learn from this tactic, and he actually used it against the Lakotas uh, during later battles. So let's talk briefly about America's attitude toward the Native American population. During this time, most white Americans thought of Indians as pure savages. There was no nuance to it. There were some few who had an appreciation for the plight of Native Native Americans, but most white Americans saw them as a clear and present danger to civilization, and they wanted the army to deal with them aggressively. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Custer's second court-martial. As we discussed in an earlier episode, Custer was a ladies' man. And, well, this may have gotten him into hot water with his wife while he was out on field duty with his unit. It is believed that in a desperate attempt to win back the affections of his wife, he deserted his unit in the field during maneuvers uh, to go to visit her on July of 1868. For this, he was court-martialed and convicted for leaving his troops in the field, but he actually got off lightly with a one-year suspension, mainly because of intervention from Sheridan and leniency from Grant. He, however, was rescued by Phil Sheridan to take part in an upcoming battle. Quote, There is no one with me whom I more highly appreciated than General Custer. He never failed me, and if his late misdeeds could be forgotten or overlooked on account of his gallantry and faithfulness in the past, it would be gratifying to him and to myself, and a benefit to the service. Difficulty in adopting himself to his, to his altered position, unquote. Sheridan stated the obvious. Custer was a man of the past, unable to find his place in the world that he had helped make. So now let's talk about the Washita battle. His saving grace came on September the 24th when Sheridan wired him from Fort Hayes, quote, General Sherman and myself and nearly all the officers in your regiment have asked for you and hope the application will be successful, unquote. He wrote, quote, can you come at once? Eleven companies of your regiment will move out from the 1st of October against the hostile Indians from Medicine Lodge Creek towards the Wachita Mountains, unquote. Sheridan got Custer out of suspension so that he could lead the 7th Cavalry as part of a three-pronged attack on the southern Cheyenne Indians, led by Black Kettle, who had gotten off the reservation. Some atrocities were committed against white settlers, and they were in winter camp in the Indian Territory, which is now known as Oklahoma. The southern Cheyenne were great warriors, and they had won vast lands away from their neighboring tribes as a result of deadly and costly wars, So they did not want to give up these lands to the U.S. without a fight. Now, the U.S. Army preferred to fight the Indians during winter. This is because ponies used by the Indians subsisted by grazing, which was beneficial during most times of the year as it allowed them to travel light. 
However, this left the Indians' ponies very weak during the winter. Army horses ate grain that they transported, so they remained strong during the winter, which gave the army an advantage. The U.S. Army was tiny in size, uh, and during battles, the U.S. troopers were commonly outnumbered. This didn't really concern them because of their tactics. Uh, in fact, the Army's biggest concern wasn't that they would, not, would win a fight, but rather if they could induce the warriors to stay and fight rather than to scatter. From T.J. Stiles, the surprise attack on the sleeping village was a standard tactic because it was effective to keep the warriors from scattering. Quote, the presence of women and children immobilized the warriors and forced them to defend their ground, unquote, writes Richard Slotkin. It inevitably killed non-combatants, though not intentionally. Custer clearly carried out an atrocity at Sheridan's command. His orders were stark, quote, to destroy the villages and ponies, to kill and hang all warriors, and to bring back all women and children, unquote. At this point, Custer did what he did best, he, he, to plan and fight battles. Few, if any, of his officers had spent more time in combat, and none had so much command experience. He took every precaution in his approach. He assessed the terrain and improvised accordingly. The troopers attacked the camp and killed many of the warriors, including Black Kettle, and took some of the women and children as captives. They also killed most of the ponies left at the camp by the warriors. As the soldiers were making their way back to their own camp, the Indian warriors were swarming the area, daring the soldiers to come after them, again from Stiles. The men of the 7th Cavalry faced growing danger. They were surrounded, perhaps outnumbered, They were cut off from their supply chain, which was vulnerable to capture. They could not risk remaining overnight, despite their exhaustion. Custer Custer believed that fighting his way back would simply lead the enemy to his own wagons. Instead, he thought up a ruse. He ordered the regiment into a consolidated formation with the captive women and children in the center. He put out flanking riders, Clark recalled to look for Elliot and snipe at the procedures. With a band playing, Ain't Ain't I Glad to Get Out of the Wilderness, they marched slowly toward the main village. The warriors immediately rode back to defend their own. The heights above the valley emptied. As darkness fell, the column abruptly changed face and rode quickly in the other direction. Custer had returned to Camp Supply immediately after the Battle of Washita, as, it, as the battle was called, Sheridan delighted in his success. It was precisely what he had demanded of his protege. This tactic worked as planned. Large numbers of members of various nations poured into Fort Cobb before the end of 1868, all fearing that Sheridan, and by extension Custer, would attack them if they remained at large. Because of this, Custer's fame returned and his great reputation was restored. He was a good fighter, and that fact had saved him again. Now, at this point, he begins to write his memoir in a serialized uh, format 
in magazines. He called it My Life on the Plains. Uh, and eventually this serialized memoir was uh, published in a book of the same title. In January of uh, 1872 came the highest profile departure from his duties when he joined a hunting party organized for the Russian Grand Duke Alexis. It was a kind of bison-killing diplomacy. As historian Paul Hutton notes, President Grant wanted to steer the visiting royalty away from Washington, where he was embarrassed by a bitter feud between Russian minister, the Russian minister and Secretary of State Fish. Unlike the English or the French, the Russians had unequivocally supported the Union during the Civil War, and Grant wanted to maintain close relations despite Fish's spat. He asked Sheridan to take the visitors on a high plains adventure among the buffaloes. Sheridan called upon two of his most trusted frontiersmen, Buffalo Bill Cody and Custer. This hunting trip turned out to be a complete success. Later, he tried to translate his fame into money by convincing New York financiers to invest in a silver mine in Colorado, and a few of them did. However, this was not successful due to a lack of management discipline on Custer's part, uh, which we mentioned earlier. Now, this was the Gilded Age. Huge fortunes were being made, and Custer wanted in on this, but his self-indulgence and lack of discipline really got in the way of him ever getting rich in his lifetime. Now, when Custer uh, was sent to Kentucky, he was sent there as an overall effort to suppress the Ku Klux Klan. He did participate in some of this, but spent most of his time in Kentucky focused on horses and horse racing. While he was there, the James Younger gang were operating in the state during this time, and Custer's troopers were sent to protect uh, trains carrying payroll from these robberies. And then in 1873, Custer and the 7th, Cavalry were sent to the Dakota Territory to protect survey parties for a new transcontinental railroad, the Northern Pacific. To the Army, though, the entire point of the Northern Pacific was to defeat the Sioux. Just before the 1873 survey mission began, Sherman explained to Congress, quote, This railroad is a national enterprise, and we are forced to protect the men during the survey and construction through, probably, the most warlike nation of Indians on the continent, who will fight for every foot of the line, unquote. Life for the Lakota Sioux was being eroded by the people taking over the riverbeds for villages and railroads, and things were rapidly coming to a boiling point for the Indians uh, in this area. There were two major battles that occurred during uh, Custer's time in the Dakota Territory, uh, but with, it involved him and his 7th Regiment, and they were successful for the most part for the, uh, for the cavalry. This was a difficult time for, for Custer, however, and he was arrested by his commander. Uh, his commander's name was General Stanley, who had won the Medal of Honor for defending Franklin during the Civil War. Stanley, and Custer, Stanley had Custer arrested for making comments about Stanley's drunkenness for most of the time. This was indeed a major problem that affected the entire operation. He was, he was, of course, released and cooler heads prevailed. And during this time, Sitting Bull attacked and Custer handled his men very well.
1874, we have the Black Hills ex Expedition. This expedition was to find outposts to be used to fight the Sioux and Lakota Indians. The Army constructed new forts to protect migrants on the Bozeman River. As with the trails and posts on the Central Plains, these represented uh, points of continual consumption and destruction of water, forage, and game, desolating resource-rich areas. They also represented an intrusion into the hard-won Lakota territory, which had suffered far less from such incursions than the lands of the southern Cheyenne and Arapahoes between the Platte and Arkansas rivers. In many respect, respects, the Lakotas stood at the height of their power at this time when Custer first entered their domain. The, just a quick note about the Lakota and the Cheyenne. They were expansionist people who had moved and wiped out their weaker Native Americans in the area. They were indeed great warriors. Uh, Custer, and him, Custer himself actually found gold during this expedition, and he publicized this fact in the Eastern newspapers, which caused settlers to really pour into the Black Hills area, which precipitated a lot of the trouble uh, that would occur soon after. This settlement uh, created pressure great pressure on the Lakota and Cheyenne Indians, which eventually led to the war which would take Custer's life. Now, Custer almost did not participate in the Little Bighorn Battle. The backdrop for this is that the Democrats had took over the House in the election of 1875 and soon began hearings into alleged corruption amongst members of Grant's administration. Grant was the president at this time. Custer did not like Grant's administration, and he published some un unsubstantiated rumors about corrupt officials in the newspapers, which, again, got him in, into hot water with Grant. Now, again, for an active member of the Army, this was pretty self-destructive self and inappropriate, and Grant used this to pull uh, Custer off of the upcoming field operation, which we now know as the Little Bighorn, but eventually relented after more begging from Sheridan and Custer, again from Stiles. Custer wired Sherman twice on May 4, protesting that he had waited all day to see the president. Sherman replied to Sheridan, saying that Grant would allow Custer to return to Fort Abraham Lincoln, but not to go on the expedition. Custer took the train to St. Paul, there, on May 6, he made a final appeal to President Grant, which Terry took up the chain of command. I respect, quote, I respectfully but most earnestly request that while not allowed to go in command of the expedition, I may be permitted to serve with my regiment in the field. I appeal to you as a soldier to spare me the humiliation of seeing my regiment march to meet the enemy and I not share in the dangers, unquote. Now join us for episode 9 in which we will finally get into the Battle of Little Bighorn. <laughs>